Welcome, we are here with Jane Metcalf, entrepreneur, publisher, extraordinaire, uh, amazing human being, extraordinaire. Uh, great you. to be with you, how are you? Thank you, I'm excellent. I'm delighted to see your digs here. Yeah, so I, so much to talk about, um, and we're gonna talk all about Neolife, which is extraordinary, but first I wanna talk about you and your background. Um, such an extraordinary, uh, different, set of things that you've done. You were the co-founder of Wired. Uh, you've done a chocolate company. <laughs> you've done all sorts of extraordinary things. How, um, let's go back to the 90s and, and really that sort of area which we were chatting about earlier. Talk us through um, a bit about you and, and what you're most passionate about and, and how you got started. Okay. So I was, um, I was living in Europe and uh, I answered an ad in the Herald Tribune that led me to an organization that was doing, you know, editorial and um, uh, and financial content, uh, but was using technology in innovative ways to extend the reach and the profile of a very small group of entrepreneurs. And so um, I met my partner Lewis there, and ended up moving to Amsterdam to be with him. Um, and at that point, we created a magazine called Electric Word, which was basically about how um, technology was, um, basically it was man-machine interface, you know? It was all the technologies that would allow you to uh, communicate. So it was, you know, talking, writing, um, publishing. So it was everything from voice recognition and speech synthesis to tools for translators and then machine translation. And that got us into studying artificial intelligence and natural language processing and neuro-linguistic programming and all these really crazy And no one knew anything about these things at that point in time, right? Well, the interesting thing was, you know, those fields were all very vertical and right. you could go really deep into there, but they had no language for communicating across all of those different fields. And so our publication, Electric Word, was a place for, you know, smart people, not um, not just general public, you know, but researchers to learn about something that they otherwise would never be reading about. And this is a theme that comes back sure. again and again in my life. But um, we were in Holland and Philips was super innovative and they were starting to digitize all these different data types. You know, they had the Walkman. Not, I forget what Philips' version of the Walkman was called. But, you know, music went first. Um, then they started... Um, you know, so, so of course... And was this early 90s or... No, this is 80s. 80s, This okay. is 80s. Um, and so we saw how all these data types were getting uh, digitized. We saw... Um, we came to Macworld in San Francisco, and we met a lot of the engineers working on these things, and they had big dreams about how the technologies they were developing were going to change the world. And they were talking about changing education. They were talking about changing democracy. They were talking about, you know, civic participation. They were talking about revolutionizing business, you know, crumbling hierarchies in business so that information could flow, and, you know, the hacker in the IT department could suddenly be talking directly to the chairman of the board, which was unheard of right. in the 80s, and even in the early 90s, you know, this was really not happening. And so um, we came to San Francisco, and then we like plugged into the whole Macintosh community, and met that whole um, scene. You know, the cyberpunks were there too, and all of a sudden it was like, this is really interesting. There's something much, much bigger here than just where's technology taking us. It's like, 
so anyway, that so was at, sort of... So at that moment in San Francisco, there was the Grateful Dead era and then these cyberpunks. What was the atmosphere back then like in, in the ecosystem, in the community? Oh, it was incredibly diverse. So many different points of view. People from all over the world, you know, some of them were hackers. Some of them were, you know, the LGBT community. Some of them were, you know, Hispanics involved in, you know, social justice and, and art and um, you know, everybody was interested. I mean, I used to love talking to people about the different, going into different communities and talking about how technology was going to change their community. And I'll never forget this day going into a little theater south of Market and talking to a group of puppeteers. Wow. You know, and here are these the adventurous few who are experimenting with it. And then the woman goes, yeah, but I make sock puppets. You know, what's, what's technology going to do for me? And so, um, And anyways, was there an was aha moment then that led to Wired, because that seemed like a real turning point, I think, for what was going on at the time. It, it sort so, of coalesced a lot of things going on. Absolutely. Between art and culture and technology and interesting people. Exactly. So after Macworld, we came back to uh, Amsterdam, and um, you know we were talking to artists who were doing lots of like data visualizations and stuff, and having, you know, pumping visuals into their rave parties, you know, based on algorithms or based on data sets or whatever. And, you know, we just started thinking about all of this and thinking, you know, the world's going to change in profound ways. And we can't just talk about technology. Lewis used to, my partner Lewis used to say, if Rolling Stone talked about the rock and roll revolution, uh, the way computer magazines are talking about what we call right. the digital revolution, they would be writing about amps and wah-wah right. pedals. But they it's were talking classic. about the lifestyle of rock and roll and going and the on politics tour of rock and, and, and roll, politics right? And, yeah. and the, the impact of rock and roll on the world. Yeah. So wow. yeah, so we wrote the business plan for Wired. We thought about starting it in, in Amsterdam, but um, you know there, there was no risk capital, so we didn't know who would invest in it. Um, there were very few people who would walk away from their day jobs you know, and take a winger on getting this thing off the ground. Uh, and then from a business standpoint, um, you know, it was, it was telecommunications costs were killer. Right. You know, and I was trying to put together on top of that advertising packages where 11% of my circulation was Holland and 35% was in the UK and 40% was in the US. And it's like, hey guys, let's get on a conference call and talk about budget sharing. It's never gonna right, happen. Right. On top of that, that transatlantic call was costing, you know, oh, exorbitant fees. Oh, a dollar and 50 a minute. Yeah, yeah, exactly, no, way more. It would have been oh. back then in the late 80s, would have been $5, $10 a minute. Yeah. So anyway, so we packed up and we came to San Francisco and we found this extraordinary community of people. You know, we started, we, it's funny, we came to New York first and uh, we went to talk to both computer magazine publishers and consumer magazine publishers and they just looked at us blankly. You know, the consumer magazine people were like, we don't get it. This is, there's nothing cool about this. And you're trying to tell me absolute vodka is going to advertise in this? No way, not going to happen. And the computer magazine publishers were saying, you know, if everything you're saying is right, then everything we're doing is wrong. You know, so therefore you have to be wrong. <laughs> right. So you, you've just rolled out uh, recently Neo.life, an extraordinary new um, digital magazine. Yeah. Um, explain what that is and what you're doing here, your vision for Neo.life. And also, I'd love to learn more, what's going on now that may remind you of what was going on both in the 90s and 80s with the, this yeah. cultural sort of revolution that was going on then for maybe similarities or differences to now. So many similarities that I'm asking my friends who knew me then to tell me how it's different, you know, because I don't want to get caught in that trap, you know, where you think you can just repeat something that you've done before. 
Um, and of course, media has been innovated to smithereens. So it's like that clearly is different. But um, I do see uh, similar things. So there's a lot of people who are deeply, deeply um, immersed in their fields. Um, only in this case, they've got an additional 15 years worth of studying you know, the human body and biology. Um, and they just don't have the bandwidth to think about what's happening in another field. They can't possibly keep up with all of it. And so um, they're siloed by field. They're also siloed because either they're in academia or they're in industry or they're in clinical practice. Mm. And so, you know, the medical world is so, there's so much to learn. There's so much structure around that. There's so much liability around that. And it is life or death in most case, in many cases. And so everything's very serious and there's far fewer people taking wild-eyed, you know, wild-haired risks. Um, and so I just see the opportunity to come in and have experts in the fields, but, but be able to talk across those fields to an educated audience who have an understanding both of biology and technology and who can see how these things are converging and conspiring you know, to help us live longer and, and defeat diseases and prevent um, diseases from occurring. And, um, and oh, why not make us smarter and happier at the same time? And so, um, so we called it a digital revolution back in the 90s. And I think that revolution's kind of played out. You know, we kind of see what that innovation cycle looks like. Right. You know, we can, we can see where we need to go with the technology. Um, but what's really interesting is when we turn that technology inward. Into our bodies. And we start hacking our own bodies. And, I, you know, CRISPR was just one of those eye-opening moments where it's like, wait a minute, homo sapiens will never be the same again. Mm-hmm. And what are we designing? And who's talking about this? Where are the platforms for kind of hashing out what we care about and what human beings should look like going forward, you know? And um, so anyway, I just thought, you know, this is, a, this is another revolution and it's neo-biological. And um, so I basically declared another revolution. And uh, I want to be the wired... By the way, here's the... I've got my button on here. Um, gradient. So it, it's... <laughs> You know, did you originally with Wired and did you start with a print and then also go digital and now you're starting digital? Yes. Um, yeah. Obviously, that's by design. Do you ever foresee also doing print? And, yes, and, absolutely. Yeah. I think I think print's going to make a comeback. But I think print for um, for short term purposes doesn't really make any sense. Mm-hmm. And so um, these ideas, I mean, I go back to some of the early essays that, or not even early, but I mean, Wired has a history even today of running, you know, thought pieces that are worthy of being read again and again and again. And yeah, memes come back, you know, on the internet all the time. But I just think by capturing them in print, you know, mm-hmm. be that a beautiful magazine or a book or some other print format, um, just makes sense, you know, it's sort of like a, I don't know, like a time capsule. And so, yes, we will definitely do print um, as we expand. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, you know, whether it's, I, I'm not going to do a weekly, probably not going to do a monthly, but, you know, a quarterly, certainly an annual, single topic issues I think would be really interesting. Yeah, I hope so. everyone reads the articles. They're really extraordinary, high Thank quality. Um, we have fantastic writers and a great little team. And it's... It is the kind of, um, there's a human interest, lifestyle component, art, culture component. Like, they're very interesting, compelling. It seems like 
anyone would be interested in reading these, these articles, even though there's science and biology and technology focus. So we have writer's guidelines um, that we give out to our writers, and we ask them, you know, why would this not run in the New York Times or Wired or the New Yorker? You know, what makes it uniquely neo-life? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it's a, it's a question we'll be asking ourselves forever, I think, um, because, you know, it is, it can be for a general audience, but at the moment, general audiences are not thinking about these ideas. And so when I look through, you know, who's signing up, it's a lot of scientists, um, it's a lot of entrepreneurs, it's a lot of investors, um, and it's also culture watchers, you know, people who just sense that there's something changing, they can't wrap their arms around it, and they get the sense that they can get a little perspective on it all by reading Neolife. And that's reminiscent to when Wired got going as well, It's just right? like Wired. It seems we're noticing, just in terms of the digital health revolution that's going on. There really is this cross-pollination going on in terms of uh, technology, um, health, and healthcare, the healthcare industry. We're starting to see a lot of cross-pollination um, in types of industries coming together, consumer, technology, life sciences, and then other types of health and healthcare. Is this where you see things going, much more of a mashup, if you will, where the lines start to blur, um, where biology and healthcare becomes much more ingrained into our life? You know, I think people are, um, I mean, first of all, more than 50% of the diseases in our country are caused by self-inflicted wounds. Right. You know, smoking. It's smoking. Eating. Exactly. Exactly. Um, sedentary lifestyles. and. And so intelligent people would never expose themselves to those risks, would they? But, oh, guess what? They do. Right. Why is that? Why am I sitting at my desk for 10 hours a day? Well, I'm an entrepreneur, mm -hmm. you know, and I've always been rewarded for pushing myself, you know? And I think our culture, we were talking about this earlier, how many um, people are entrepreneurs these days. And we know what it takes to be an entrepreneur. It takes going the extra mile. And what suffers? Your health your relationships, your sleep. I mean, you, you know, you don't eat as well, all these things suffer. So turns out, <laughs> even being smart and knowing what to do, it's still hard. Mm. And so, you know, I think we're all hackers at heart and we're all trying to figure out how can I possibly find some balance in my life? How can I mitigate the effects of stress? Um, and so, you know, the place where healthcare meets health is really interesting. You know, it's like, okay, I'm sick, I have a disease, it's inherited or it's cancer or it's something, you know, versus I'm a healthy person and I want to be smarter and I want to be happier and I want to be, you know, um, I want to live longer. And so, you know, I think those two rivers, you know, come together in a place where it's all churning. Mm. And, you know, I think your, you know, health transformers are, have a big opportunity to define their markets, I think, in different ways, right. you know, because, when I tell people I'm doing something in health, they immediately want to introduce me to people running hospitals or right. launching drugs or insurance companies. And I was like, that's not what I'm really talking about. Right. I mean, I'm talking about the frontier of diseases, the frontier of longevity, the frontier of fertility. Um, you know, so it, it's just, it's the same. It's not that I'm not interested in insurance companies and pharmaceuticals and hospitals, because I am, because that's where so much of this stuff really, where the rubber meets the road. 
Um, but I kind of just want to look at it in a slightly different way. And I want to open up the dialogue to think about it in a different way. And I think, you know, I am not a scientist and I am not even a technologist. I'm an observer and I just, I watch where things happen and where, and I, t I tend to have a sense of where it's kind of going. And I'll go to these conferences where people are, you know, the MDs, PhDs just blow me away. The dedication, the, the, the single-mindedness, the brilliance that they bring to their work is stunning. I could never do that. On the other hand, because I'm out in the world having a much broader range and spectrum of experiences, I think there's something to bring to the mm. table. And they, they are interested in, you know, an art exhibit or a lab that I went to that they would never have gone to because they're not in neuroscience. Right. Or, you know, a, a meditation practitioner that's learned something extraordinary about themselves. So. so are you observing something similar to, with the digital revolution, the eventual leaders, right, sort of disrupted maybe the, the status quo. You know, we talked about how media has changed as one example. Many industries have been disrupted by the digital revolution. Does, are, are you observing or do you think that in healthcare, we were talking about the traditional healthcare players of the, say, the last 50, 100 years, but there's these new wave of, of innovators, entrepreneurs, thinkers that are looking at biology, healthcare, um, health tech, but with a totally different lens, more the lens that you're describing. I mean, mm -hmm. is it, possible or likely in your view that the leaders of the future follow kind of a, a similar path of, of change and transformation and, and we may not even know who's leading healthcare in the future? No, absolutely. I, I, you know, I think it's a wide open field. Um, and you know, what's interesting is it's, it's so personal. You know, it, it always can boil down to you. And so, you know, we talk about how, how kind of dreadful it is that the pharmaceutical industry is motivated to not actually cure disease, but to have your patients continue needing those drugs for the rest of their lives. Right. You know, what happens when that gets disrupted? Mm -hmm. You know, what happens when, so we spend $3 trillion on healthcare. Just We're in the US. Just in the US. We're pretty clear that our outcomes are diminishing as our investment increases. We're pretty clear that probably a third of that spend is totally wasted, you know, but we don't know necessarily where or how. You know, compliance with your drug regimens is just one. Um, Over-prescribing is another, you know, and so where this all lands is, um, is going to be a great, big, giant question. And, you know, in the meantime, what I'm interested in is I'm not interested in, like, takedowns of things that are broken today. I think every conference I go to, People need to vent, and they need to have those conversations, and I get it. But you know, what are those bright and shiny new opportunities? Mm. You know, what's the, it's like the charter school analysis. You know, it's like um, yes, public health is broken, and maybe if we just start building an alternative over here from scratch, you know, we'll figure out something better. And so we're looking for examples of people, you know, who have a different way of thinking about it. Um, and we're looking also for people who have a different way of thinking about it and who can help articulate a vision for what the future looks like. You know, because revolution is, you know, historically about destroying what exists. And it often requires a different group to come in and build whatever comes next. And so I'm actually, even though we call it the neo-biological revolution, I'm actually more interested in what comes next. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, well, it seems like the big opportunity is, you know, with technology 
people automatically think of Bay Area, Silicon Valley, um, you know, or some of the other hot spots, Boston, other areas, uh, New York. Um, this seems like a global opportunity. As we think about health, um, it impacts every human. Um, as we think about the real opportunity to not just focus on the $3 trillion mess over here, but how do we transform health for the seven and a half billion people? Right. Um, how are you addressing that with NeoLife? Do you see this as a global story, a global uh, mission for how you're thinking? Absolutely. I mean, I was just in Amsterdam at the Quantified Self Conference, um, and you know there were people from Denmark and Sweden talking about the amount of data that um, is available to public health people to help understand and predict where health problems will occur because they don't just have your medical records. They know where you live, they know where you go to school, and it's all, um, they understand the relationships you know, that, that you have, and it's kind of extraordinary. So there's like that thing, you know, Europeans in general tend to have a different view around that because there are municipal services that they get a benefit from when the municipality has all the information. You know, America, we have a very different relationship to that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, so I think the, the privacy issues are, are going to be very important to track across different regions of the globe um, as we move forward. Uh, you know, the AIDS organizations in Africa have just the exact opposite. They've got no information. They don't know where anybody lives. People have no addresses, you know, and they, you know, they, but on the other hand, you know, there's five billion cell phones right. out there right now. Right. That's a huge opportunity. There's the Oxford Nanopore Sequencer, mm -hmm. you know, that can go into the field and help, you know, diagnose disease like on the spot, you know. So places that have no infrastructure can have technologies just like jettisoned in, you know, that are wireless that can connect up to, you know, additional resources. You know, China, I mean, we keep running stories about what's happening in China, right? So a couple of weeks ago, you know, the 20 different CRISPR inhuman clinical trials happening in China right now, you know, including one for human papillomavirus in living people. So it would be literally CRISPRing in real time, oh. in vivo. Yeah. Um, you know, so 20 of those experiments are happening in China. Veritas Genetics just announced that they're going to be sequencing 1,500 babies. Um, you know, so the whole opportunity to start sequencing at birth and collect that data and be able to track that over time to understand, you know, People's reactions are, wait, 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 you know, I'm going to be discriminated against. Someone's going to use this information against me. It's like, well, let's at least find out what we can know. Right. How can we, you know, and then maybe we can come up with some regulation and shape it in the way that we want to. But the opportunities, you know, are happening in China right now mm -hmm. because we have privacy concerns, we have HIPAA concerns, we have regulatory concerns that are, and of course, regulations that are actually, you know, policed right. as opposed to regulations in other countries that aren't policed. So you've, you've been a serial entrepreneur. You've done so many wonderful, successful things. Advice to other entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs just getting started, um, what should they be thinking about? What should they be doing? What are your biggest lessons learned for getting started? You're, you're starting this new venture. It's very yeah. exciting. It's going really well. Yeah. Um, getting going. What, what do they need to know? Um, God, well, there's a lot they need to know. <laughs> What's maybe the, um, but... the, the most important lesson learned for you over several ventures. Well, I'll take this down to just an extremely personal level um, because, you know, as an entrepreneur, I tend to be obsessive and I get rewarded for that behavior. And, um, but it leads me to um, lower productivity, lower creativity, and lower health. 
And so one of the things that I'm really consciously doing this time is um, getting out of my comfort zone, exposing myself to things that I'm not a master of. And I think, you know, I, I would be asked questions as an entrepreneur, and I always had an answer. Always. Mm -hmm. And if I didn't have an answer to me, that was failure. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think allowing yourself to not have the answer and to be thoughtful about that and even transparent about that with your investors is a really great way to bring them into your party and to make them more um, partners as opposed to potential protagonists who are nevertheless going to write a check for me. And I know that's not necessarily what people want to hear because the minute they open that door to, well, I don't know, you know, now you've got your investor, you know, who's in your pants and like basically yeah. telling you what to do. Yeah. I just think there's a way to navigate that better than I may have done in the past. So I am, uh, I am more experimental today. You know, I, I, we had a five-year plan at Wired and you know, we followed that plan for pretty much three and a half years. You know, we didn't anticipate that three and a half years in, more than half of our company would be doing um, web-based media because it didn't exist when we launched. Right, 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 <laughs> so there's right. that. Um, but I think you know, raising capital for eight to twelve, you know, eighteen to twelve to eighteen months, you know, and and here's what we're going to be experimenting with during that time, and here's what the lessons we want to learn during that time are, um, is a little bit different than. I mean, yes, obviously you have to have metrics and goals and all the rest of it, but I just add that experimentation component in right at the beginning when you bring your investors in. And I think you don't lock yourself into a box mm -hmm. because I see a lot of people seem to be driving down a road and they know they're going to hit the wall, but they can't stop because that's what they promised. Mm -hmm. And so just opening it up a little bit more. And it seems that the culture, we were talking about this earlier off camera, in particular Bay Area, it's, it's changed a lot in terms of what's going on entrepreneurially in the Bay Area. What, mm. I don't know if you have any thoughts there and how different it is now than maybe a cycle or two ago. Yeah. Uh, what's going on? Well, you know, I think um, Silicon Valley is just, you know, the most powerful force I've ever encountered to be honest. I mean, Wall Street is probably the most powerful force, um, but Silicon Valley is trumping Wall Street mm -hmm. in, in many ways. Um, and so, you know, and <laughs> the investment bankers are on that list right. of professions that are going to be obsolete. In fact, I met somebody at a large investment bank whose job is basically going to be, to be obsoleting all of his colleagues. And I said, well, what do they think? And he goes, they don't believe it. They don't believe that they're going to be we're, taken this over. This is the old Goldman Sachs building that we're filming in right now. Oh, and you're it's kidding. all startups now. Yeah, perfect. So. To my point, exactly. And so, you know, kids, entrepreneurs growing up these days, um, you know, there is no safety anymore. You know, going to IBM, of course, was supposed to be the safe thing, and, um, and that wasn't. And, you know, I think the only safety uh, these days really is in acquiring skills. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you have to spend a certain amount of time um, acquiring as many skills as you can and then, you know, come up with an idea. And, you know, my kids in high school did not consider themselves entrepreneurs at the beginning. And now four, five, six years later, I think everybody thinks that the only safe thing to do is have a lot of skills and be an entrepreneur, which is radical rethink radical, because, yeah. you know, I think people's perception of risk has just gone much higher. Mm -hmm. And I think their understanding of how the world's going to change and how rapidly it's going to change is coming much faster. And so, you know, it'll be interesting because not everyone has the mentality to be an entrepreneur, as you know. I mean, 
which isn't the same thing as going to work for a startup. Right. Right. So there's the leaders who absorb, you know, the body blows, the emotional right. roller coaster, you know, all the rest of that stuff. And then, of course, still have to display the leadership. Right. I know you're an optimistic person. Are you optimistic about the future? Hugely. Um, and particularly if we have a vigorous public debate about the impact of science and technology on Homo sapiens and on our planet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think we can be, I, you know, I was at the TED conference this year and there was a conversation around geoengineering. And um, one very brilliant scientist said, I just don't think we should be experimenting on our planet like that. And the other brilliant scientist said, well, haven't we been experimenting on our planet for the last 50 years, pumping huge amounts of carbon dioxide and you know, all the rest of it into the environment. So you know, I am a firm believer in technology as a, um, as a way of solving problems that technology has created. <laughs> right. And so it just requires very conscientious and very deliberate and very public dialogue. And one of the things that I'm hugely excited about is an example um, set by somebody like Kevin Esfeld, mm-hmm. um, you know, brilliant geneticist uh, who's done this experiment in Nantucket and Martha's Vineyard in explaining the science of gene drives to the local communities there as a way of eliminating Lyme disease and giving them the keys. Say, look, I'm explaining how this works. I'm gonna continue explaining how this works. I'm going to let you drive. If you want me to move forward experimenting with this, I will. And if at any point you want me to stop, I will. Um, I will always share my results. I mean, that's really interesting. Because I think the next 10, for sure, 20 years, Homo sapiens have to make a lot of big choices. And um, if we leave it to the scientists, we're missing out on the diverse voices that should all be involved, that should all be sitting at the table. And so I'm very optimistic that we will devise the structures to make that happen. And I hope that Neolife can play some role in that debate. So everyone should go to neo.life and subscribe. It's absolutely extraordinary. And the .life domain name is uninhabited right now, which startup health people should take advantage of. Go check out the dot life. Um, Jane, just want to thank you for being so uh, influential, inspirational. You've really, the the work that you've been involved with and helped lead has really, I think, impacted at least a generation or two of of the future's uh, entrepreneurs and creators. And so just want to thank you for everything that you've already done and so excited about what you're doing with Neolife. Well, thank you, Unity. I'm thrilled to be here. I think Startup Health has, um, has chosen the most important work to be doing today, which is let's solve the health piece first, then productivity, then clean environments, then everything else can come into play. But if you don't have your health, what do you have? Right. So thank you. Thank you.